Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 22. I felt God in all these spaces in some kind of real way. So it's not that I have to throw it all out, but I do have to give myself permission to ask questions. I have to give myself permission to to be upset and angry and unhappy. Things that we don't often encourage people to do in worship settings. Darren Calhoun is a justice advocate, a worship leader, and a photographer based out of Chicago. He works to bridge connections between people of differing perspectives through story and relationship, using the lens of intersectionality to facilitate dialogue and education to bring about justice and inclusion for people marginalized based on race, gender, or sexuality. He's currently a worship leader at Urban Village Church South Loop, and he previously served as a worship leader at Willow Chicago for close to a decade. Uh, He's an associate fellow with Evangelicals for Social Action. He sings with a band called The Many. Uh, He co-led the hashtag I'm Sorry and hashtag Make Love Louder campaigns at Chicago's LGBTQ Pride Parades. Uh, And he's been a speaker and a performer at events such as the Gay Christian Network, Wild Goose Festival, Sojourner's Summer for Change, and the Reformation Project. Uh, He's on the board at the Center for Inclusivity and on the Reformation Projects board. Uh, And he is an extrovert who loves hugs. And I love Darren. And I am so glad that he's on the podcast today. We're talking about worship today alongside justice uh, and some of the way intersecting identities can go hand in hand with our worship. A really quick note, Darren gets into concepts of whiteness here, and as I always say when we get into these conversations, if you listen to this and you're kind of like, what in the world is he talking about? I'd encourage you to jump back to episode three with Dr. Robin D'Angelo, where she kind of covers the basics of what what's whiteness, what do we mean when we talk about that uh, from the perspective of what's called critical race theory. Uh, so go back, listen to that, and let's go ahead and dive in. Darren, hi. Hey. How are you doing today? I am great. Uh, it's been a busy week, but I'm glad to have a moment to talk to you. Yeah, you just got back from Portland, right? Yes. Yeah. I was, I was there as part of uh, Oriented, to, to, uh, Oriented to Love, which is a, um intentional dialogue between gay and straight people, okay. conservative and liberal, just to, so we could talk and hear each other more than try to convince each other. Hmm. I've, I've heard about those before, but haven't like gotten super involved, and they always sound like really neat spaces. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so to start, uh, this is a question I ask everyone, but how do you identify, uh, and then how has your faith helped form that identity? Sure. Uh, these identity questions are fun. Um, <laughs> I- <laughs> And, you know, depending on what space you're in, you choose different words. Um, So I try to try to hit all the bases, but I always end up missing some of them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so to start, I usually just describe myself with these labels. They don't define me. Mm. Um, sometimes that's a sticking point, especially when you talk to Christians about how you, uh, what words you choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do describe myself as black American. Mm-hmm. Um, I describe myself as gay, uh, as cisgender, um, as cisgender male specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and within that, there's things like Christian. Um, there are things like um, being somebody who is an activist mm-hmm. um, or an advocate, um, as well as somebody who is centered on love. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, those are just some of the things that, that come to the top of my mind. But obviously, there's an endless list more of things that I might might add. Yeah, I think that when it comes to my faith— it has been essential or a key component to all of my experiences. Mm. Growing up in the United States generally means that you're in an in a environment that is Christ-centered or at least Christ-friendly. Mm-hmm. And so being Christian is kind of a default. People assume that you're a Christian unless you have something that visibly may uh, distinguish you or unless you say something otherwise. Um, but for me, I very specifically became a person of faith uh, early on, I want to say around sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up in a home where we were constantly talking about race and talking about different ways that people uh, people are oppressed. Now, at six years old or even sixth grade, we didn't necessarily use those terms. Right. But we were definitely talking about, um, I always use the example of my mom, who never went by the name Mrs. Calhoun. Mm. She always went by Miss Calhoun. And she would correct people when people said Mrs. Calhoun. And I didn't understand why. So I was like, Mom, why why do you do that? And she was like, well, men don't have honorifics that are based on whether or not they're married. And so why should women? And I just thought it was extra. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, uh, okay. But but early on, I was learning that uh, what I would say is that, you know, that it harkens back to that scripture, they're neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, that in Christ, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she wasn't doing overt Bible studies on that, on that specific uh, passage, it did set me up with with the understanding that uh, we really are the same, that we really are united in some important ways, and that people have been uh, evil toward each other, mm. and that we could we could be a part of changing that that narrative or changing that pattern. Mm. Um, so from early on, there was this idea that we're all that that we're all invaluable, that we're all important to God, um, and that we should love each other. So it just shows up at a core level for me. You, you said a little bit earlier that talking about like all of these, these quote unquote labels that we use as identifiers and, and how that can get difficult in Christian spaces, because I think, I I think what's coming to mind is like that pushback that people always give of like, well, why, why aren't you saying your identity is in Christ? Um, and, and I'm curious as one who, who holds a lot of different intersecting identities, how do you sit with that, with that kind of pushback of people? I think that's a pushback that so many people get. Um, but I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I think there's a historical context that really comes into play here, um, especially for people who live in the United States. Mm. Um, we tend to think that the world we're born into is the world that always existed or the way things are are the way that they've always been. Mm -hmm. And I think especially in our context, that's not very accurate. Uh, nationalism or, you know, affiliating or identifying with the with the country that you're from mm. is something that's common and it's something that's been going on for a long time. And it definitely would, would have been the case uh, when Jesus uh, first walked the earth. Mm -hmm. And so when we see things in the Bible that refer to nationalism, it's in a specific context. Mm. Um, but when we look at it today and we try to apply that to the conversation about race in particular, um, there's actually some missing parts there. Hmm. And so what I'm often hearing when people say, well, why identify with a certain thing um, is informed by the way whiteness works in the United States. Hmm. So whiteness is a construct. It's not a nationality. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a culture, mm -hmm. um, per se, in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. um, whiteness is something that was defined by policy and legal terms that created a class of people or a group of people who had power and ruled over everyone else. People uh, often had to, as immigrants, lose their nationality as well as lose their ethnic identities, um, whether they were Italian or German or Polish. Um, when they came to this country as immigrants, to hold on to those identities meant to be oppressed, mm. to be other, to be an outsider. And so to become American, which also very specifically they were trying to achieve whiteness, uh, they had to lose their accents. They had to lose their culture. They had to use the, lose the special spellings of their names um, and become Americanized or assimilate. Mm -hmm. And so that creates this value that was taught by um, by parents who were immigrants, taught to their first generation children, and eventually lost by the time you hit the second generation, that there's something special, unique, different about them, and that the best thing you can do is hide your uniqueness mm -hmm. or hide what makes you different or, or stand out. And so for whiteness, that's a benefit because after a certain point, if you don't have the accent or if you don't um, practice certain cultural traditions, you just kind of blend in into white American culture. Mm -hmm. But for other people, we never have, have had that option. No matter how much we Americanize our names or no matter how much we lose certain accents, people of color tend to stand out as being other mm -hmm. um, because of skin tone, um, as well as all kinds of other structural things that, that maintain the establishment of race. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to people in modern times saying, why are you identifying with that? Why are you dividing? Why are you separating yourself out? I think that's informed by the fact that to be normal in America, and I use some air quotes there, to be normal in America, you had to, to uh, askew everything that would have made you different. Mm. And to be normal also meant to be Protestant Christian in America. Mm. And so um, that becomes like the prevailing identity, the thing that you hold up as a shield is this is the only thing that matters in a system that only benefits people who can blend into that. Mm. And so for me to uh, identify, for example, as gay, people were like, well, why would you do that? You don't see me flaunting my sexuality um, on the streets or wearing it as a label. And I was like, well, you do. Um, when marriage was only for men 
um, men marrying women, um, your wedding rings and your public ceremonies, those are all, quote unquote, flaunting your sexuality um, if you're going to apply it that way. But because you're normal, it doesn't stand out as as being different. And what people are usually asking someone to do is just stop standing out as being different. That makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really going on is that we have to uh, we have to get back to the place where we realize that we all lose something mm-hmm. in in that assimilation. That mm-hmm. we lose that that people who are now raced as white lost something to become white. Mm-hmm. They lost history. They lost language. They lost. Uh, family connections in the same way um, when people are are upset about me identifying as gay or when people are upset about how uh, various groups name their oppressions and name certain things that they experience um, it's because we're trying to reclaim something Mm. and we're actually trying to get back to something where we're a whole person you know an intersectional person not just a single identity label and not just so we can push other people away. It's mm-hmm. actually so that our whole stories can be told because we don't want to lose something and ascend into whiteness. We want to be our whole selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about you. You mentioned talking about in the story about your mom, about learning how we can be, I think you used the words, united in important ways. And I, I'm sensing a difference between the uniting power of of whiteness. I put that in air quotes of that's a certain kind of unification and the unification that you're talking about here is vastly different. Am I hearing Definitely. that? Yeah. Um, what's, what's coming to mind is like, I, I'm thinking about, I had uh, Robin Henderson Espinoza on the podcast of several episodes and, and they were talking about like a, a hermeneutics of radical difference of, Mm-hmm. embracing difference as a hermeneutical path forward. Yeah, I'd love if you could maybe talk about what does unification look like when we highlight difference instead of try to try to push it down? Yeah. Um, you know, first, Robin is awesome. I absolutely love them, and working with them has been, been really great in the, the ways we've crossed paths. Mm. Um, and I cannot speak to things on the level that they, that they do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either, so... <laughs> But, but I, I do speak for my own stories and my own experiences. Um, and so when it comes to what difference looks like and what that can be, uh, you know, to, to get spiritual about it, I think about Revelation, hmm. where it talks about every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. I think about the work of uh, Dr. Megan DeFranza when she hmm. talks about how when our understanding of gender may have been binary at one point, that all of creation has been expanding and growing and becoming more complex and more intricate. Mm-hmm. So the arc of our story isn't that we get back to Genesis, it's that we get to this grand, diverse, new thing in Revelation and eternity mm-hmm. that's not like what we had in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to our differences, I think that these are a part of the grand and beautiful way that God is diversifying things, that God is creating new things and continues to create new things. Um, And so for me to celebrate the parts of my language and the parts of my culture and the parts of my history, the parts of my identity that are different, 
um, it is a part of that celebration of, of all of God's glory that doesn't have to be limited, that doesn't have to have to be um, disempowering. Yeah. I think the difference here is that um, the creation of whiteness and white power were very much about enforcing sameness. Mm. They were very much about um, being who you are and not allowing others to be present, not allowing others to exist. And so when people hear black power and try to equate it to white power, it's like, no, we're talking about two very different things. Mm -hmm. White power was and has a strong history of trying to eradicate others. And so if people use that as a definition for what black power is, then, yeah, you would be scared. You mm -hmm. would think something like Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization or some kind of other misnomer like that. Mm -hmm. But when you see black power as being a sign of resilience, a sign that uh, black people and black lives and black cultures do matter and they count and they're beautiful, um, then you realize it's not about taking anything away from anyone else, but it's very much about celebrating this group of people who were also made in the image and likeness of God. And I think that's the part we have to get to. We have to, to get past the fear that power always means bad, or we have to get past the fear that difference always means danger. Mm. And we have to get to the place where we realize that love is, it, it covers a multitude of things, that it, it reaches into all kinds of ways of being and so forth, that God, who is fully uh, capable of loving us all, is not trying to make us all the same. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if we can find rest in that, if we can find peace in that, then I think we'll be able to embrace difference as something that we enjoy and celebrate and, and laugh about and play with as opposed to something that is a tool to oppress or a tool to hurt people. It, it sounds like there's even two different visions of what, maybe not visions, but two different ideas of what power even is in those kind of two, those those circles of what whiteness uses power for as a, as a means to control, suppress, homogenize. Um, and then this, this other vision of power is being, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, about Jesus and, and the way that I feel like he kind of used power in an entirely different way than what, the quote unquote powerful expected. Um, Definitely. And it seems, I mean, I, I feel like the word weakness is a touchy word because it, it's loaded with a lot of cultural assumptions about what weakness is. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain power in that weakness that I think we see Christ personify. Um, that is revolutionary because it's true power. Does, does that right. make sense? I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out oh, exactly yeah. what I'm trying to say. But. Oh, you're, you're onto some good stuff. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus is a great example. No matter what our relationship to Jesus is, some of us don't necessarily believe in Jesus as Savior, and others have had very toxic relationships with people who follow Jesus. Um, 
But I think that no matter what our, our background is, that there's some really uh, valuable insights that we can learn from the historical figure of Jesus. Um, you know, again, whether or not that is a spiritual religious figure for you. Um, and so one example of that would be Jesus being willing to show up and put his physical body on the line for those that he cared about. Um, in 2017, we talk a lot about allyship. We talk a lot about how we can show up and support, um, whether that's via sharing something on Facebook or or giving money to a campaign. Um, we all, uh, I think, I think we all have this idea that that there's something very important about how we uh, show up for other people. Hmm. Um, but a lot of times that becomes very limited. It becomes, you know, well, as long as it's convenient, as long as I can afford it, as long as it doesn't disrupt my day or my world too much, and as long as it's not scary for me. Hmm. Um, but Jesus very literally was like, you know, the world's not right, and I want to see it do better, and I'm willing to show up to the point that it can cause harm to my physical body. Hmm. And I'm willing to show up to the point that I believe so much in this that um, that I'll, I'll give it my everything hmm. for it. Hmm. And uh, from that perspective, I think we see power not as dominating, not as violent, not as, uh, as trying to take over whatever existing power structure is, but instead we see vulnerability mm. as true power. We see the ability to um, sacrifice ourselves in a life-giving way mm. as true power. And that power, I think, is more enduring because even though the power structure or the, the rulers and emperors of the time continue to remain in their positions, we also saw the birth of a movement um, that has gone on for generations mm -hmm. and for thousands of years, mm -hmm. and that continues to inform thought and be a part of public discourse you know, many years later. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there's a way of understanding power that isn't attached to violence, that isn't attached to militarism, um, that really reframes what we think about when it comes to power and how we can show up and, and change the world, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... What's going through my mind is <laughs> atonement a theories. Lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but I'm thinking about atonement theories and, and like the the atonement theories that I find myself more drawn to now. So so the ideas of um, what Christ did on the cross um, and what he accomplished there uh, in his death and resurrection. Um, I'm drawn to the ones that frame power in that way of being a subversive you said the word vulnerable like a subversive and vulnerable act as opposed to a kind of reigning over um and there's something really beautiful about that because it feels very grounded um mm -hmm. and and not as grandiose and i think that grandiosity i think we see in whiteness, in our churches. Um. Yeah. I think there's, a there's again, the, the construction of race and, and who's right and who's wrong in history often informs how we show up into this conversation. Mm. And so um, I was hearing a, a, uh, hearing a lecture recently, and it talked about how when we think of where the holy is, 
when we think of what is spiritual, what is what is otherworldly. Um, often in Western culture, we look up and mm-hmm. we think about clouds, and skies, and universe out. Um, whereas in contrast, in many African cultures, the holy is the ground. Mm-hmm. It's down. It's deep. Um, and that completely inverses the, the construct of where the holy is and what's right. And it completely changes things like what does it mean for us to be made out of the, out of the dirt or the dust? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for God to then wrap God's self in, in these bodies made out of dust and dirt and so forth? Um, what does it mean for holiness to not be something upward and outward, but for instead to be something down and, and, and right here present with us. Um, and so what happens is I think that, uh, I think God meets us where we are. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we need the mighty God, who's going to come in with power and, and, and show up looking a lot like our oppressor mm-hmm. only on our side, mm-hmm. I think God will allow us or give us space and grace to, 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 to understand that. But then like Jesus did, Jesus showed up in a way that completely baffled and confused the religious leaders, the spiritual authorities of his time. Mm. And, and so I think that, that in the same way, God will we'll understand God a certain way based on our own experiences. Mm. And then God at some point will show up and show us a whole other way. Mm. Show us this way of vulnerability. Show us this way of being the lamb that was slain. Um, show us this way of love that is the fulfillment of all the things that came before, but is completely foreign to what we understand or, or what we've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it does get into a, atonement theory, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we need slash want a violent atonement. Right. I, I think it comes from our culture that we've learned that justice means to punish someone. Mm-hmm. And I think God shows up to us individually and sometimes to groups of people. And it's like, what if there is another way? Mm-hmm. You know, what if, what if there's a way that justice can be restorative, that, uh, that we can account for the wrongs that have happened that aren't about doing more violence to whoever has been in the wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where there's room. I, I'm really appreciative for being at Urban Village Church here in Chicago um, because for two reasons, you know, one, there's talks about, you know, what, what atonement theory do we want to live into? Mm -hmm. But there's also the sensitivity to the fact that violent atonement has been the justifying cause for many people to be abused in churches spiritually. Mm -hmm. Um, It is, oh, well, I tell you this truth in these harsh and damaging ways, because God is going to give us an eternal truth that's going to be harsh and damning. You know, it's just like, when when that's where people have come from mm. and we come to a place where we realize that might not be the whole story, mm-hmm. uh, it makes us sensitive in ways that I think open up that possibility to go, what if there's another way of relating to this? Mm-hmm. It doesn't change, the, doesn't change the history of what happened. It doesn't change that uh, Jesus and, and that death is important to us, but it totally changes how we read that story and how we hear that narrative. And mm-hmm. I think it changes how we love each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think so much of the way that we relate to people flows out of our beliefs and whatever those beliefs are. Like it doesn't, that's not just tied into atonement theory, but like, yeah, exactly. But 
very we're very much informed by the way that we kind of see the trajectory of humanity and i think an atonement theory is one way of framing that and definitely yeah so that makes that makes a lot of sense um so you're a worship leader yeah um tell me about that that's that's a really big part of your life um and i'd love to kind of hear more about what is it about worship that that keeps you in it especially with the harm that you've kind of named um, indirectly, but the harm that that can be wrapped up in some of those spaces. Oh, absolutely. Um, For me, worship and my understanding of myself as being someone to borrow from the, from the uh, book purpose driven life to being someone created for worship. Mm. That was very literally the thing that was life sustaining when I was in the midst of a very toxic church environment where I was being told that I was damned, where I was being told that that uh, all kinds of really horrendous things about where my life would go because I'm gay mm-hmm. and because um, I couldn't become or I wasn't becoming straight mm-hmm. or heterosexual. Um, but it was it was it, it was these moments of worship, whether that be a song coming on the radio or whether that be me just singing out to God during a time of prayer and God uh, singing back to me in my spirit. Mm. It was just like, oh, wow, this is huge. And then the fine moments in scripture where, like in Zephaniah, where it talks about God rejoices over us with singing. It's just like, what is what does the, what is this thing? <laughs> um, and it became less about oh, this is some kind of demand that I have to perform um, for this God who's sitting in this cosmic audience waiting for me to show up. Mm. Instead, it becomes this relationship where in the same way that you, you know, you enjoy singing to your kids and your kids sing back to you and it may be off and it may be weird or or the wrong words, but because it was from their heart, it's the most beautiful thing to you. Um, I think that's what our our worship is like to God. Uh, And so everything from the the musical parts of our worship um, or maybe the, the, the expressive things like dance or, or, uh, or even visual arts to the part where it's just quiet. And it's just silence or, and it's just being with us. I think all those speak in very profound ways. And for me, as somebody who is a worship leader who doesn't play an instrument and who doesn't read music, <laughs> it means I'm relying on a different set of, of abilities when it comes to creating a worship environment that, you know, no, the, I absolutely, absolutely need people who do those technical skills and do them well. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, I start from what is the experience that we're having together um, corporately, mm-hmm. as well as uh, what does this teach us about God and what does this teach us about how we can relate or come to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's, a lot, it's a lot more practical in many ways than it is just an expression of beauty for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that leads us into some interesting places. Yeah, I, I, I'm finding myself curious about, you mentioned like this, this act of corporate worship and, and that kind of approach of what does this teach us about God? Um, and I think that's my next question. Like, <laughs> what have you learned about God in, in this process of, of really owning that part of you in all of its particularity? Yeah, 
So my my worship style has evolved with the different seasons of what I've been experiencing um, in life uh, when it comes to church and when it comes to God. Mm. Uh, early on, I my I remember my earliest experience of of encountering or experiencing the the, the movement of the Holy Spirit was when I was singing a song uh, called Perfect Praise. Um, and it was a choir song and it had these three parts where the sopranos, the altos and tenors would be singing different things. And it's just a, it's just a, a praise song and the, specifically the tenors are singing in all the earth. Um, mm. and we're just singing that over and over and over again. And I remember I would start crying and this was a, around seventh grade. I would just start crying at that part. Mm. And it was like, I, I asked my teacher, I was like, I don't know why I'm crying. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why am I crying right now? And she said, oh, baby, that's just God moving. Mm. And it's okay. Let that happen. And I was like, okay. So that's the beginning of me being a crybaby in church. (laughs) 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 But it was just something that I couldn't put words to, that I didn't have any teaching around, but it was just something that God was showing up and doing. And it was my early way to trust that God was present in my life in tangible ways, not just like, oh, yeah, God loves the whole world. Mm-hmm. Now, later in my story, um, I get into this place where um, I was told by folks in church that I needed to be straight to be pleasing to God. I needed to become heterosexual and that God would be displeased with me if I were a gay man. Mm-hmm. And so that begins to inform my worship in that space. And the songs that I'm drawn to and the, and the things that, I, that I'm crying about are how bad I am. Mm. And I'm crying about how unworthy I am of love and how how unworthy I am of God's attention. And and it became cries of mercy. Mm. And while there's authentic and, and needed kind of space in there, I think we all at some point have that place where we realize that we are bad, that we've done things wrong. Um, some of that was more informed by people's expectations than it was from God's conviction. Mm-hmm. And so to a certain extent, I had to kind of hype myself into some of that Mm. and i had to embrace some ideas that didn't really come from god even though you know big picture is some great music from that time in my life and all that but Mm. um i was really beating myself up as an act of worship Mm. um fortunately god is faithful that that would be that too would be redeemed Mm. um but i remember just coming into worship spaces in a very different place uh in that season Mm -hmm. but Again, it was in that season where I'm actively trying to tell God how unworthy I am, where God's speaking back to me and saying, you are worthy mm-hmm. and that my love for you cannot be changed. And that, you know, the, the scriptures would come to mind, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor death nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, literally ready to start dancing in prayer time. <laughs> and, and again, it's just those that interplay between what God is saying and doing, where I am in the community that I'm in, all those things. And so as we as we move forward in my story, I, I later became a part of a church that, that was not trying to, to make me heterosexual. Um, but they were asking some pretty heavy demands on me as far as celibacy. Mm. And the challenge there is that they didn't have a, a theology or a culture that really was ready to support celibacy as mm-hmm. a demand. Mm-hmm. They were just like, oh, well, this is the natural response to what you should do if you're a gay man. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is, 
you know, there was no community in that. There was no worship in it. There was no long-term vision of what life could be. And I think that churches that do take a traditional or a conservative or somewhat even call it an orthodox view of same-sex people and or same-sex attracted people or LGBT people um, who they feel should be celibate, I think our our church life needs to reflect that there's hope in the future in that. Mm. That if people are going to be called to that according to that church community, that that really has to be something that's not like, oh, well, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so my worship in that space where I was wrestling with that and I was trying to figure that out for myself, it became one where I was definitely owning my identity. It became one where I felt uh, affirmed in, in who I was in God and that I could figure out the rest. So there's a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of possibility. There was a lot of exploration. And musically, that's where I began to explore more. It's where uh, I had the first chance to really incorporate what might be called secular music or contemporary music um, that was not explicitly spiritual into my worship, mm. where I could see the value of a video or see the value of a dance or see the value of welcoming people into the worship space who may not necessarily be religious, mm. but do have something uh, creative that they can offer to help us experience God together. Um, and so then my worship becomes, you know, again, like I said, open, it's hopeful, it's, it's full of possibility. Um, and then in this most recent season where, where I'm at Urban Village Church and where I have, uh, this is my first time being on staff, um, mm-hmm. and it's my first time being like the person who essentially 52 weeks out of the year has to, has to produce something mm-hmm. for, for a gathering of people who are coming to, to do life together, um, where now it's like, wow, there's so much that we can do that's challenging people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think in one of our worship experiences together, uh, we, we talked about language for God, whether that's masculine or it's feminine or whether it's gender neutral mm-hmm. or all of the above. <laughs> mm-hmm. These are questions that people have deep convictions about, but that uh, can really bring life to or bring confusion to a corporate gathering where you're worshiping and it's not just about you individually and how you feel is best. Mm. Um, And so in this space is where um, I've become more intentional about the music styles, not necessarily being your personal top 40 playlist. Mm. Um, So sometimes it'll be contemporary Christian music with guitars and and a rock sound. And other times it'll be traditional gospel. Mm. And then sometimes we'll sing in another language. Um, and the idea here isn't that we're trying to appease every possible demographic. Mm-hmm. The idea here is that we're trying to, we're practicing that that revelation, every n- tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping together. Um, but we're also realizing that this corporate time of worship is different than our personal times alone. Mm-hmm. That this corporate time of worship is just important to to enjoy that your that your sibling in Christ is worshiping in a way that's more comfortable and more authentic to them, even if it's not your favorite song or your favorite style. Mm-hmm. And so we, that's one of those things that we do, we do practice together. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love it because it, it seems like, I mean, it's in, in this context, at least you're kind of framing your life through the act of worship. I'm sitting with you. You said, um, I think it was like phase two of the story of, of when mm-hmm. you were of when you were being told that you couldn't be gay and 
and you you said that you were beating yourself up as an act of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, that like that resonates with me. I think I I like stepped away from I like couldn't even listen to worship music for years yeah. because of the baggage that was wrapped up in it, it, it seemed like a style of music that would continually remind me how terrible I am mm-hmm. um, and that can, those can be really hard messages to get away from yeah they're they could just become ingrained and and so I'd be curious like how as you've as you've shifted away from that and, and have moved into more freeing spaces in worship, would you how would you say that that worship can help maybe counteract that message as well? Yeah, so there's this has been a tricky one to navigate uh, in that where those messages come from again are informed by our society, right? So. For me, those first messages about how bad I am, um, those were in predominantly black church spaces. And uh, some of those messages are informed by the fact that we're in a society that's constantly telling us how bad we are Mm -hmm. as people of color, especially as black people. And church, for many people, has been a refuge, but where that part of their reality is never divorced from their worship. Mm -hmm. And so... um, so many of the songs are about what we call going through and songs about how I got over and the songs about how, you know, one day there's a hope on the other side, yeah. but, you know, very otherworldly, very like disconnected from the realities of this world. And I was I was disenchanted with that. I was just like, I don't want to I don't want to stay there. And that's the the primary language of the worship space that I was in. Mm-hmm. And so being in a church that was more more multicultural, but but dominated on the side of, of maybe white cultural music and values and so forth, um, it was easier to transition to where it wasn't so much about that because that mm-hmm. wasn't the narrative of the people creating the music. Yeah. But the challenge is that there were their own things that they were doing and the unworthiness that they may have been talking about um, came from a different place. Um, it did come from a place where this is probably your only place where you're considered unworthy in society, mm-hmm. especially if it's male. You know, mm-hmm. white men leading worship usually means mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is where your 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 humbling and so forth has to be more performative. It has right. it comes from a place of oh, I'm choosing to 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 let go of things. I'm choosing to let go of my power and choosing to let go of all these great things that, that, uh, that the world tempts me with. Mm. Um, and so that's again, another kind of space. Mm. And for me trying to navigate being somewhere between these two worlds, um, meant that I had to figure out what my own language is and figure out what my own story is and kind of navigate the fact that there are racial implications to almost every part of our worship experience. Mm -hmm. Um, but more more than to to overwhelm myself with all these details, it was to realize that it's like, okay, I felt God in all these spaces in some kind of real way. So it's not that I have to throw it all out, but I do have to give myself permission to ask questions. I have to give myself permission to, to maybe step away from certain things or certain groups. Um, I have to give myself permission to, to be upset and angry mm-hmm. and unhappy. 
mm-hmm. things that we don't often encourage people to do in worship settings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I sing with a band called The Many, and many of our songs are about lament. Mm-hmm. And we, we very boldly enter into sadness and into the angst of what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. But in every song, we also remind ourselves of, that there is hope, that there is love. Um, and we give people, many people who are, are not okay in space spaces, we mm-hmm. give them permission to be okay. Mm-hmm. Because church teaches us that the only place we can be is in church. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I, I'm pretty sure God is everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a scripture that said if you made your bed in hell, that God would be there too. Yeah. And then my experience definitely confirms that God will show up any and everywhere for for the beloved, mm-hmm. and we are the beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I just I want to just put it out there that if people are uncertain, if people are really struggling with how they fit into church or if they fit into church at all, I think that's good. I think it's holy. Okay. I think it's an important place to be. Um, and when you look at folks like Abraham and, and you look at folks like Moses, or specifically Abraham didn't have a have a church, mm-hmm. he didn't have a pastor to, to check things off with, and he didn't have a Bible to, to, to quote text from. Right. Abraham had a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And at this point, and I think at every point, our relationship with God really is, is primary. It definitely happens in community, and it does happen in the context of other people. But again, if God is everywhere— and the relationship is everywhere. You might have a worshipful moment in your conversation with a Lyft or an Uber driver. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you might have a moment of seeing Jesus in how in how you show up for somebody via text message who's having a bad day. Yeah. Like, there's all kinds of ways that I think that you can be a, a worshipful person, even if the institutional church isn't okay for you right now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Darren, thank you so very much. Thank you. You can find Darren across social media at HeyDarren, Twitter, Instagram, at HeyDarren, or through his blog, DarrenCalhoun.com. If you're interested in some great worship music, check out his band, The Many. They're on Spotify, Apple Music. If you feel like jumping back to the 90s, you can even buy their music go by their music it's great i was just listening to it really good stuff queerology is on twitter at queerology pod or you can tweet me directly at matthias roberts i'd love it if you'd leave a review of queerology uh just do it in your podcast app or head over to matthiasroberts.com slash reviews as always i'd love to hear from you if you have ideas of who you'd like to see in the podcast or just want to say hi reach out there's a contact form on my website and until next week y'all bye save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.